Today on the Bill Kelly Show on AM 900 CHML. So let's talk pot, shall we? Maybe if they had a little more pot in their life, they'd be a bit more mellow about the results. But they don't. But we will. We are actually uh, edging very, very close to uh, legalizing marijuana here in Canada. We uh, heard earlier in the week from a liberal task force releasing its recommendations on how to best get the product to market, keeping it out of the hands of kids, by the way. Good luck with that. Uh, The report is addressing where it should be sold, so things like individual storefronts or maybe by mail. Not going to sit well with the unions or even the provinces, which would like to sell it through, you know, things like the LCBO. Uh, But the task force says weed cannot be sold around cigarettes or booze. So it'll be interesting to see how they intend to get it to market. The report suggests you have to be 18 to buy it, and that makes a lot of critics unhappy because they say brains are not fully developed until you're 25. So are we essentially putting younger kids at risk? And apparently, I find this interesting, it'll be taxed based on how strong it is. So the stronger the bud, the bigger the tax. I think it'll be the only time that we have ever seen people want to pay high taxes in this province. So, uh, but I, but uh, again, the biggest issues by far um, of what I can see in this report is the policing of it, both on the roads and in, in, in sales. We'll talk about um, how on earth are police going to regulate this? If we can't even catch drinking and driving, how do you, you know, monitor this side of it. But again, the sales, where's it going to be sold? We have pot dispensaries popping up everywhere, everywhere. They're on every block. They are just everywhere. And they're very easy. You go in, you fill it, they help you get your card and away you go. But the plan is to keep this out of the hands of kids and off the black market. But to me, the plan is all a bit hazy. Let's bring in the pot princess herself. Jody Emery joins us. She's, of course, an activist and owner of Cannabis Culture. Hello. Hello. I normally would be speaking to you out of Vancouver, but as I understand, you're in Montreal opening up some dispensaries. Yes, we just had an enormous press conference, quite packed to the brim, uh, announcing the opening of eight locations in Montreal, which will be 10 by the end of this month. So, okay, look, the dispensaries in big cities are, are everywhere. I mean, you go to Toronto, they are literally a dime a dozen, and they're popping up, and the police are still enforcing the laws and saying, we're going to bust you. It's not stopping people from shopping at them. And uh, we seem to be in this kind of legal limbo where I don't ever think any of these cases are actually going to get into the courts or through to a prosecution or a conviction. But nonetheless, we live in this legal limbo right now. Yes, there are still many people being persecuted and punished unjustly under the law, and we still have millions of tax dollars being misused and wasted on marijuana law enforcement. And we have to remember that crimes should be dealing with things that have victims. But right now, marijuana prohibition is what creates victims. And more millions of Canadians have been punished under marijuana prohibition. They lose their right to travel, their jobs, their kids. And this discrimination has been going on for decades. It's only through the activism and civil disobedience of people like Mark Emery and our organization Cannabis Culture for decades that we've been able to see change become possible. What what are your thoughts on the recommendations that you heard? Did you get the sense that, that the federal government knows what it's doing? The government is finding itself in a very sticky situation because the marijuana industry already exists. Mm-hmm. They're not dealing with something like the craft 
brewery explosion or you know any sort of dot com boom we're dealing with an industry that already employs tens of thousands generates billions of dollars and operates in the shadows only because of government prohibition policy so once the government actually starts to realize how deeply ingrained this industry is they're going to find it very difficult to try and usurp that industry, mm-hmm. which is what they're trying to do. They're trying to hand over the existing industry to stock market companies and big business people while continuing to criminalize the very pioneers who made this industry possible. Yeah, look, I think it's absolutely naive to think that we are ever going to get rid of the black market uh, when it comes to pot. Well, I would hope we'd be able to because... You know, again, this is an industry that's only black market because the government criminalizes it. So as soon as the government actually ends criminalization, all of those people who have to hide in the shadows can come forward and take pride in their work. And those who are unsavory will not come forward and they will lose their position. Just like we don't see gangsters selling alcohol these days, even though they did under alcohol prohibition. And I would also like to remind listeners that the study into marijuana convictions found that 95% of all marijuana growers are law-abiding citizens with no connections to organized crime. But if there are concerns about organized crime and gangsters involved in this industry, that's simply because of government prohibition regulation. And if the government introduces legalization that continues to be overly restrictive and prohibitive, then you will see the black market continue. But the government can destroy that by allowing the existing industry to just not decriminalize anymore. Let us open up like coffee shops or fresh pressed juices or yoga studios, these places that are allowed to flourish because they do no harm. Well, look, I mean, the argument would be, you know, how do we regulate it so that we don't have a 16-year-old, 17-year-old walking in? But, but, you know, my argument back to that would be, if a kid wants it, they're going to get it. It doesn't matter. It's like beer. You know, if I wanted my peach schnapps when I was 13, I didn't care how I got it. I was going to get it, and I did. True, and young people are having access to alcohol, and they also are being given a lot of pharmaceutical medications, which are very addictive drugs, actually. So young people, or let's say teenagers or young adults, can actually find a safer choice with marijuana. If I was a parent, I would be concerned about my son or daughter being assaulted or raped or murdered or killed because of alcohol. But marijuana only comes with the harm of a criminal record. So for many young people who are currently using alcohol or pharmaceutical drugs, they can actually use a safer alternative. And we do know that many young people, including toddlers and children are having their seizures and their illnesses fixed by using cannabis and cannabis oil. So we need to remember that although we're not promoting legalization for young people to smoke pot, there's no way that we're going to sell marijuana to minors. That's not our goal. But we cannot use that fear to justify persecuting all the adult consumers who do deserve access. And we must also remember that children buy candy where cigarettes are sold, and alcohol is sold in all sorts of fruity flavors and slushy drinks and chocolate flavors, but responsible adults do not give that to young people. And a criminal record for marijuana will hurt a young person far more than marijuana. It takes away their right to travel, to get a job. It can hurt young people for the rest of their lives. So we should be encouraging a moratorium on marijuana arrests. So I support Tom Mulcair in his demands that Justin Trudeau explain why criminal records uh, mm. are still going on. 
That argument will go on for some time because I think we're a long way off of having this thing remedied. Jody, thank you. Thanks for your time. Good luck with the dispensaries. Jody Emery joining us here on AM 900 CHML. Look, in Quebec, they sell cigarettes and they sell booze in corner stores. And, oh, yes, the sky has not fallen. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. You know, as we were talking, uh, you know, there are a lot of challenges that are going to be ruled out. Uh, This is a big, big project. There are so many... uh, uh, areas that have to be worked out on this. I don't think it'll happen um, quickly, is what I'm saying. And I think one of the biggest challenges of it will be the policing of pot, specifically making sure that, A, kids don't get it, but that folks don't ingest it and then drive. And the task force did mention a national plan is needed to police pot, so we still have to get that built. And then we have to somehow develop a roadside test so that if you're under the influence, you can be caught. It's not exactly, you know, you can't just blow um, like you can with a breathalyzer for alcohol. Let's bring in Ross McLean to this conversation because I think, you know, you as a, a former cop and a crime specialist know all too well um, the challenges that lay ahead when it comes to legalization of pot. Yeah, absolutely. And, and actually, your previous guest there made very cogent arguments about all of the uh, inconsistencies around this, but certainly... From the policing point of view, I did not see a whole lot of input in that report, despite the fact there was two RCMP people uh, on the report. And Alex, as is usually the case for me when I like to look, I first look to follow the money, and I look to see who's going to make money off of this and who's going to be costed money off of this. And clearly, this is going to cost police forces and those who have to pay them uh, a fortune to regulate this and enforce it. Yeah, and I've also got uh, Dr. Oren Amate, who's going to be joining the conversation, because one of the areas, and we'll get back to the policing of it, one of the areas of this, uh, Dr. Amate, is the age. You got uh, availability of pot to kids as young as 18, and we have science that suggests a, a young mind does not develop fully until the age of 25. How concerned are you about the age of, of legalization? Do we have you, Dr. Ormate? Hello, there you are. Hi, Dr. Ormate. Sorry. Hi. Hi. Buttons buttons are hard for me some days. All right. Um, I could ask what you've been smoking, but we'll... Hey, you know, it happens. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I mean, seriously speaking, looking at the studies, um, we do know that the brain develops up until the age of 25, and 16 seems to be the magic mark. Um, I mean, even... 17, 18 is dangerous as well, but a lot of the studies that show significantly more brain damage or brain changes in structure and functioning are with people who smoked before the age of 16. But the one thing with that, people have to be um, you know, really cautious here because there's a big difference between smoking a couple of joints a week and what some of these studies find, which is that some of these uh, people who smoked before the age of, who started before the age of 16, um, they were smoking like 15 grams a week, so a couple of grams a day basically. Um, which is pretty regular usage versus a couple of joints here or there. So I don't want to scaremonger here. Mm-hmm. Right. But, I mean, as, as both of you know, uh, you know, certainly back in your policing days, Ross, you would have seen it. it, it kids, if kids want it, they're going to get it. There's no way of stopping them. And, and even if we have the education out there, you know, drinking is and can be dangerous. But, you know, when you're young, you're experimental and you want to try these things. So it's very hard to think that this is not going to get in the hands of kids. Well, absolutely, and this is where the regulation for the uh, policing comes in, as the doctor was saying, talking about uh, the effect on the brain. But they also made note in this report that the potency of the pot that you know people were smoking you know, 20 years ago was at 3%. They said now it's been doctored up to about 15%. 
They said it's not hard to move it up to about 30%. And they said there's even ways you can do it uh, with chemistry, add some stuff to it to get up to 80% THC. So you're, you're not even talking the same product when you're looking at the effect on people and how the police are going to be able to monitor that. I mean, what level has somebody been smoking? There's a whole problem here of having the technology and the training to be able to enforce what are going to be regulatory scientific information for court prosecution purposes. Look, there were 7,000 drinking and driving charges laid this year alone in Ontario. Uh, It might be Ontario, it might be Canada, but that's a lot of charges just for drinking and driving, something that we have been educating on for decades now. And those numbers are not only uh, thriving, they seem to be going up. So what what springs to mind is if we can't even police the drinking and driving, how are we going to police smoking? Because most people, Ross, think that they're better drivers when they smoke up. Yeah, absolutely. And let's just look at the numbers on that. Normally what happens in most police departments, they have an officer trained to become a a breathalyzer operator. They'll have uh, ones specifically trained for that. They're just on shift for that. And the officers, if they arrest someone, have to bring someone to that person. What they have to do now with this new regulation is they're going to have to train a whole pile of uh, officers to be drug recognition experts, have them available on the road, uh, you know, available for policing, in order to do these things. And it costs a lot of money to do the training and a lot of money to prosecute and a lot of money to staff that. And while they're staffing that, they're not staffing other uh, policing activities for doing it. And, and police budgets are being cut now. Mm-hmm. So they better bring some money to this if they want the police to be able to do this. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what kind of technology they develop. Uh, you know, it takes a long time, unlike alcohol, to be able to determine if there is a uh, pot in, in in someone's system. But, you know, it's not just enough to follow the Cheetos around. Um, it, it's harder to police. There's just no question. So, Orrin, if you're, if you're in charge of educating about this um, for younger people, because given those numbers I gave you with the drinking and driving, you know, kids today, I think in younger generations, they get it, don't drink and drive. But now they're all enamored with pot legalization. So what should the messaging be if you're either a parent and or um, in charge to make uh, to make it not, I guess, as exciting? Well, I mean, I, I'm a big, big fan of decriminalizing marijuana yep. for adults yep. um, because of the effects on the brain. And we still don't even know uh, the full effects. You know, there's a lot of controversial studies. I want to say, number one, I'm not into fear-mongering, number two. However, the facts are the facts. And the way to educate is you have to kind of um, cut down the opposing message, which is this. You know, any person who's done any reading on the uh, subject knows that marijuana can be very helpful for a whole host of disorders. Yeah. The thing is, in those cases, we're talking the CBDs, the cannabinoids uh, within the drug, not the THC. So when people say, you know, it can help with epilepsy, mm-hmm. uh, cancer, whole, you know, treatments and so on, it's, it's a different type of drug, okay? So we have to let them know that. It's, you know, smoking a, a joint or two here is not going to uh, help your health. It's going to affect it uh, negatively if you smoke too much. And they have to be very clear on this, that even though we know that most people will get more aggressive um, with alcohol than with marijuana, with driving, yes, people are more paranoid and they might, tr- they might be more cautious, but the reality is, and every study has shown this, their executive function, their reflex, you know, their ability to multitask, all of that is significantly impaired when they um, are, you know, are high. So we have to get past the, the fantasy, we have to get past the glory, we have to look at the facts. And the facts are, you know, smoking or driving while high can be a very dangerous uh, activity. It can be. And uh, it sure will be interesting, guys, because uh, I don't even think we've 
started uh, down this long road of, of trying to kind of process this. I'm all about decriminalization as well. I don't have an issue with this. I think there's some really strong medicinal, um, you know, gains to be made by this. And adults should be able to do pretty much what they want um, as far as that's, you know, what they put in their bodies. But uh, sure will be interesting to see how this thing comes out. Thanks to both of you. Thank you for having a rational discussion about this. <laughs> I try, Arn. I try. <laughs> it's Ross thanks, McLean. Thanks, Doctor. Thanks, Alex. It's uh, thanks, Ross Alex. McLean joining us. He's a crime specialist. And Dr. Orrin Amate is a, a registered psychologist. So, like I said, it is an enormous project. I think the biggest challenge is how on earth you police this when we don't have the budgets. I mean, you can't just pull over everybody. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. I got to say, I scratch my head about this whole Hillary Clinton loss. You know, I knew that the left would collectively, I knew their brains would blow up if Donald Trump won. And by the way, I don't know if you remember this, but I predicted a long, long ago that he would win. Not that I like him, but that he would win. It seemed very obvious to me. But whenever um, Hillary Clinton thought it was in the bag, she lost. And, and continuously, every day now, I read through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of tweets about, oh, my God, what's going to happen to our country? And, oh, my God, we've got to stop this. And Hollywood's all enraged. But I thought maybe they'd have a lick their wounds and calm down to maybe a rational zone but no now it appears that liberals are digging in their heels and a suggestion is coming out that 20 republican electoral college voters may in fact flip to vote against trump which would essentially stop him from being sworn in as president in the new year and we already know that protesters are planning to disrupt Trump's inauguration. Big mouths like uh, Michael Moore uh, telling folks to show up in Washington and disrupt this. You know, change democracy, fight against democracy, change, change the will of the vote. Good idea. And then you say, you know, can this actually happen? And I kind of laughed at it. And then I thought, yeah, they're obnoxious enough that they probably could make this happen. But now the question is, where did it go? Let's bring in Charles Ortel, who is all things Washington. Good to have you, sir. Thanks for having me on, Alex. How are you? I'm good. Uh, you know, I've been. I was entertained, you know, a little bit by the 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 fallout after this election, but now I I feel like it's reached the land of the absurd. I mean, when do they stop and accept the fact that Donald Trump is going to be the president? Yeah, it's really amazing to me. I was thinking that if you look back over Hillary's attempts to be president, she certainly doesn't know how to win. That we know from the experience in 2007-8 and 2015-16. What we're finding out now after November 8th is she doesn't know how to lose. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is preposterous behavior here. I mean, first, uh, she actually, with a straight face, here's somebody centrally involved in running a, cha- a fake network of charities around the world. Uh, she's been doing this with her husband since October 23, 1997. She has the audacity to suggest that it's fake news responsible for Trump's election. Then that doesn't work. Uh, so she tries the idea that or they, the team tries the idea that the Russians are hacking. Well, now, yeah, I mean, the, let, revealed, let's go back to the fake news. I mean, the fake news that served her very well during Benghazi when she was happy to tell everybody that, you know, four Americans were killed because of a fake, you know, video. Um, right. That that was that was fine for her when that happened. Um, but it's not so much now. And, and as for the Russians, so the Russians put her personal server in her house. Are we to believe that? Exactly. And, and you know, well, what, it, it's amazing to me that she they would have the audacity even now to believe that uh, people I speak to on the left who were Bernie supporters 
were not outraged at what was in the WikiLeaks, what has never been denied, mind you, never been denied authoritatively by any member of the Democratic Party, that the, the evidence is abundant in those WikiLeaks cables, that the mainstream media around the world, and especially in my country, were in the tank for Hillary Clinton, that Bernie Sanders had the nomination stolen from him in numerous rigged primaries. And to think that uh, the people, that the Hillary Clinton people could be gathering tonight, as they are at some fancy hotel, to, to have a, you know, a commiseration dinner with multimillionaire, billionaire donors, uh, spending campaign funds on <laughs> that wasteful exercise, that even now they could be plotting to deny the reality that Donald Trump is going to be the next president of the United States. He earned it. So let's go back to, to the initial premise uh, when I set this thing up. You know, the Electoral cr- uh, College has to, I guess, do the finalities and, and formally, um, you know, make the president elect the president. But, but can it be overturned? Have we ever seen that? Uh, I doubt it. I sincerely doubt it. I mean, in this case, at last count, Donald Trump, I believe, had 306 Electoral College votes. Yeah. From memory, he needs around, what is it, 270? Yeah. So he has 36 extra votes. And, you know, the way it works, the rules governing how electors vote must actually vote uh, are dictated by, I believe, the individual states. And it's very clear that, you know, in, in, that the electors have to cast uh, votes that represent the will of the people here, as expressed state by state in each state election. So he has the votes. He's won the election. And there will be enormous pressures, I'm sure, uh, to try to get people to convert. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, you, you can't just willy-nilly do whatever you want and not escape consequences. So as a practical matter, I don't think this election result is going to be overturned by the, an assault on the Electoral College. There's another, even more insidious plan afoot, uh, supposedly, according to press reports, that what they want to do is, is turn this over, make it impossible for the Electoral College to function, and then turn it into something decided in the House of Representatives mm-hmm. controlled by Republicans. And there the theory would be that you get uh, an establishment Republican to get together with some Democrats and uh, try to take, you know, take the election that way. And, and that's never going to stand. There'll be riots in the streets yeah. if they try that kind. Of... Yeah, but look, Hollywood. Right. I, I thought I was. I thought it was a joke at first, and I posted it on my Twitter, and you can see it there at Alex Pearson AMP. But there's a video going around. I don't know if you've seen it, with about thirty people in it, a bunch of Hollywood stars like Martin Sheen and Deborah Messing, and them speaking out about how you can be an American hero and speak up and stop the electoral uh, college from destroying the country. It's really absurd. But this is like what they're trying to do. Well, I, I was born in Los Angeles, so I can say this. I mean, there's a reason it's called La La Land. I mean, you're an absolute La La Land if you think that's going to work. And, you know, the, the problem with these celebrities, the problem with the insulated members of the establishment, both parties, is they don't get it. They don't get that the general public in our country, your country, around the world, is not buying what experts have to purvey on the airwaves about how everything's fine since 2000. You know, we, <laughs> our jobs under threat around the world. The world is in chaos, thanks to these experts. And, you know, who really cares what celebrities have to say about anything? I yeah. mean, they should just shut up. 
Yeah, and I thought Mark Wahlberg did actually a really good job. He spoke out and uh, and said, Hollywood has no clue. You have no clue of the realities facing people. So just stop talking. And I and I thought he was uh, he spoke at rather eloquently. I'm just surprised um, at, at just how far this is this is kind of gone because some serious issues have come forward, you know, about Russian hacking. And some of it's true, some of it's not. And there's no real consensus on what actually happened with the Russians and how much influence they may have had, um, you know, in the election. But there's no question they were meddling. And the Russians aren't our friends. They are not friends. You know, Vladimir Putin is a killer and a thug, and no one should be even joking about this kind of thing. But, you know, the DNC, the Democratic Party, knew that they had been hacked and they knew that Russians were were starting to meddle. And why did the Obama administration ignore it if they knew and had warnings from the FBI that the, that this was kind of this meddling was happening? Or take it even a step further backwards. I mean, you know, let's let's talk for a second about the Brexit vote. Did the president yeah. of the United States go to the United Kingdom and basically uh, stake a position as to what the United States thought? was the correct way to vote in that election? Do we meddle in the Brexit vote? Has the United States, you know, over decades meddled in foreign elections around the world? I think we have. <laughs> this is, you know, this is ridiculous. Does the United States have the capacity to do cyber warfare? Of course it does. Does it hack other nations? Of course it likely does. Um, you know, is Russia the only one involved? No, I wouldn't be surprised if the Canadian government's hacking the U.S. and vice versa. It wouldn't shock me. <laughs> it's just, this is ridiculous stuff. Yeah, and if you read the the WikiLeaks emails, which are still coming out but don't seem as interesting to people, but they're still fascinating because the emails reveal, the Podesta in particular emails reveal that the Clinton team, in fact, you know, knew about this kind of thing going on, and they thought that the Russian narrative would actually be very, very helpful to them to their advantage that they could use against Donald Trump. So they fed into this narrative, which I think is very, again, fake news, which had it worked, Hillary Clinton wouldn't have been complaining about it. Exactly. I mean, you know, what I think we're seeing with the power of the Internet and the cheapening of the tools that you could buy to use the Internet is that we're in an age now where we're not, we don't care particularly what's in the, the, the fake news. The New York Times, the Washington yeah. Post, the delayed newspapers and magazines, uh, the mainstream filters, people are plenty well able to get and discern news for themselves. And what we're seeing here is that these, these coddled elitists in the, the main channels and the celebrities and the politicians and everybody who feeds off the corrupt system, they don't seem to get it that we see the truth. And you can't lie to us and get away with it. It's not working anymore. you got to actually perform the way we have to perform in the private sector, or you're out. But look, you know, I watch a lot of media. It's what I do. And, and Charles, I take a particular interest in American media, and I watch it. And, and look, they're all doubling down. On their messaging, they're all doubling down. I mean, the you know Washington Post, the New York Times, which apologized for its dismal coverage of the election, and it was dismal, uh, and yet they still continue to put out erroneous stories. The Washington Post, which was wrong on everything during the election, again, I can't take any of them seriously anymore because they were just so wrong, and they're not stopping. Exactly. I mean, it's as if you know, in the automobile age, these people are selling buggy whips. I mean. You know, we're not riding horses anymore. We're not doing this stuff anymore. We can figure out what the primary source says before you write the newspaper article about it. And, you know, the other thing I would say, Alex, is that I'm not criticizing you here, but but many in the media are not good understanding economics and numbers. They don't get 
numbers. This is a numbers-driven crisis. People understand their incomes are under pressure. They're losing money. Their costs are going up. Life stinks. And they don't need to hear from some multi-billionaire politician that, you know, we should just shut up and, and cope with it because they're doing such a good job taking care of us. That's not what's happening here. People want real substantive change and improvement in their lives. And I think Donald Trump is only, you know, one in a series of politicians and outsiders that are going to shake things up around the world as it finally deserves to be shaken up. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I take the approach. Uh, look, Justin Trudeau is not someone I voted for. Not, you know, I lost, we lost the election, and that's fine. I did not cry. I did not lose my marbles. I mean, I lost them for other reasons, but I didn't go out and protest. This was what the, you know, the voters chose. And so life moves on. The sky has not fallen. Uh, the world is not coming to an end. The rivers are not flooding. Everything moves on, and you get ready for the next election. I don't know if I get the sense that that's going to happen. I get the sense that the next four years um, through protest and just constant, uh, you know, uh, barraging, or, you know, it's just going to be a never-ending gang up on Donald Trump. Look, I'm taking a wait-and-see approach. I hope he succeeds. I hope he's the greatest president ever. I hope he does some really big things because I think your country's in trouble. Well, I, you know, I, what I would say about Donald Trump is we look honestly back to whenever it was, June 16th or so, 2015, when he announced, it is a big mistake to underestimate this man. And his, I mean, what he has done so far is truly amazing, unprecedented. An outsider coming in, never yep. having held political office, winning the nomination against yep. all odds and winning the election. I mean, it's really something else. He's putting together an amazing team. Um, and here's a guy who actually is a project manager. He knows how to get things done. He knows how to figure out what's important, what's not important, what's true, what's not true. And let's give him a chance. I mean, the one thing we can say with certainty is the elites in both parties have failed us. So, yeah. you know, when he said about African-Americans, you know, why not give him a chance? How could you be worse off? I'd extend that comment you know, to, to America at large. How could we be worse off than the Bush uh, Obama years. How could we be worse off than that? Yeah, I think so. So when you see a guy like Kanye West walk in there, uh, you know, hey, if you got a problem with that, then you should have had a problem with the entire Obama administration because all he did was hang out with Hollywood. But I thought it was an interesting move for Donald Trump to bring a guy like that in because he can speak to the very people that Donald Trump uh, wants to reach. Um, you know, those who are not getting ahead, those are falling into a life of violence. Um, and you're right. I think people underestimate what Donald Trump achieved. You know, he, 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 you know, I hate the guy. At least give him credit for what he pulled off against his own party, the Democratic Party. Um, you know, he beat the media. He beat everybody. If he can do that, I, I can't imagine what else he can do. Right. And, you know, he, here's a guy who actually intends to work. <laughs> you, know, you see that? Look at the stamina of this man. I think he's around seven years old. I mean, he's working, he gets up, he's tweeting early in the morning, and he's meeting all day at Trump Tower, and then he gets on a plane, he flies around the country and gives extemporaneous speeches with no notes for an hour. I mean, this is amazing stuff. And, uh, you know, I, I think uh, I was not in favor of uh, President Obama's election, but, you know, I sucked it up and said, all right, fine, he's our president, let's give him a chance. You don't see that right now, and I think it's disgraceful. And I actually think what the... Clinton wing and the Obama wing, frankly, are doing is they are destroying the Democratic Party in this country. And as much as I'm not a Democrat, I don't want to see this great party destroyed. And that's exactly what's going on.
Yeah. It's it's quite something to see from the outside. Uh, you know, I, I before I let you go, I've got to ask you about the Clinton Foundation because you've done so much work on that. And I think a lot of people assume that that's kind of all just gone away, the Clinton Foundation. But there's still an investigation under, uh, undergoing, right? Uh, absolutely. There are multiple investigations around the world. You know, I believe it would be very important for the government of Canada to ask for its money back. I mean, the government of Canada, you, Alex, your, your listeners, your taxpayers, have sent money into a fraudulent charity that was never authorized to fight HIV-AIDS anywhere in the world, yet your government sent it money for that purpose. And uh, I do know and can report that there are multiple investigations around the world in process now waiting to see you know, what will finally happen, who, you know, that Donald Trump, in fact, will be the next president of the United States, and that a lot of things are going to happen and get shaken up starting January 1st, 2017 and proceeding with accelerating pace through 2017. This is a massive, unprosecuted charity fraud. Yeah, it's interesting. The Democrats are freaking out about the Russians hacking and swaying the election, but they didn't seem to have too much of an issue when allegations against Ms. Clinton came up that she orchestrated a huge uranium deal involving a Canadian to the Russians that uh, it kind of no one ever talked about. Well, how about John Podesta being on the payroll of a Russian company and not disclosing that? And Bill Clinton taking big speaking fees from Russian companies. Yeah, but taking an equity yeah. interest in a Russian company, a yeah. Jule, J-O-U-L-E, I believe is the name of it, and, and lying about his, the extent of his interest. That's in the WikiLeaks cables. You can see it for yourself. He was supposed to report it. He didn't report it. He tried to transfer it to his family members. And he, this, the whole truth has still not been told there. Fascinating times. We'll have to stay tuned. Charles, thank you. Thanks, Fabian. Always a pleasure. Charles Ortel is a Washington insider. I've been dealing with and talking to him for years, and uh, it's just fascinating to see, I think, what's... Uh... Want to hear more? Download the podcast on iTunes or Google Play. And listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.